let's go ahead and get started. And, you know, you, you've come tonight because you've had some kind of interest in Bible prophecy or the second coming of Christ, and it's exciting to see a good turnout like this. Um, you know, it is one of the most exciting doctrines to think about. It, it is the, it's the future of mankind, it's the future of this world, the future of our souls, the future of Jesus Christ and his role in our lives and on the earth. So it's, it's an exciting topic to study and think about. I just remember back to when I was 10 years old and in the Sunday school at, the, at their church, uh, they showed the Thief in the Night movies. Has anybody seen the Thief in the Night? Yeah, they're, they're a little bit dated now, but they had a, they had a powerful message. And, and for being at 10 years old, uh, they just really sparked my imagination, you know? They really got me thinking about the end times, and, and it was exciting. Uh, I remember then in Bible college for a couple years, getting some exposure to uh, deeper teaching from the Bible on eschatology. And it's just really been a, uh, a favorite subject, topic from the Bible of mine over the years, and, and just read different books on it. And, and I'm very grateful to my professors at Emmaus Bible College, Dr. Jack Fish, and Dr. Dave Reed, who's now with the Lord, um, and Dr. Dave Glock, who uh, are men who are mighty and eloquent in the scriptures, and, and just really stirred up uh, an interest and expectation in my heart um, for the end times and for what's going to happen. And uh, maybe you've seen the more recent movie, Left Behind, uh, with Kirk Cameron, and, and then they redid that with Nicolas Cage this past year, although I didn't think that one was quite as good as the one with Kirk Cameron, but, uh, but it still nevertheless pointed out to the reality that the Lord is coming again. And so, um, now, eschatology. So, what does eschatology mean? Eschatos is the Greek word for last, so we're, it's the study of the last things. Uh, I think I've got a slide here. Okay. And when we think about it, there, there's some attitudes about Bible prophecy that we want to avoid as we approach this. And one would be apathy and indifference. Um, you just see it out in the world. For, for some, Bible prophecy is just so filled with symbolic language and um, pictures, and it's difficult to understand. Um, you, you think of the prophecies in Revelation of a beast with ten horns and the woman riding on the beast, and you think, what is that? I, yeah, I can't make sense of that. Um, for some, maybe it's just a lack of interest, you know. It, it does take some effort to put in, to study it. Uh, for some, it's doubt. You know, it's been a long time since the Bible was written and the prophecies of the second coming were written. And in Second Peter 3, Peter wrote, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. And that's what we heard this morning in our Genesis series. By which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So... Just as the world was going on its normal business, there came a day when a great cataclysmic flood destroyed the earth, and by that same word of power from the Lord, uh, the earth is again, uh, is again reserved for a day of fire. And so um, the scoffers can say, where is the promise of his coming? But he is coming. Uh, another danger is sensationalism. And uh, 
unfortunately, my slides are just not very bright on this projector. I don't know if it can do much better. Maybe if we... Hmm? Yeah, maybe we could dim the lights if someone knows how to do that well. That would be great. But I've got a little character here that's, he's date setting. The end is 1980, 1988, 1999, 2000. It's all crossed off and it ends up saying the end is near. And I think that's where he should have started with. Because, you know, there, there's date setters and unfortunately what it does for Christianity, it, it, it creates doubt and skepticism and ridicule for the church when we have people out there uh, long ago even. In World War I, well, maybe not that dark. <laughs> Uh, World War I, they said, was the apocalypse, and the rapture was about to happen. Uh, Hitler in World War II was called the Antichrist, and then there was uh, Mussolini and Stalin. Well, um, in 1948, then, when modern Israel was founded and, and brought back together, a lot of people said at that time that the rapture could happen at any day. And I remember a story from my professor, Dave Glock, at uh, MAS Bible College, who said that he was at Dallas Theological Seminary, and the professor uh, was in chapel and speaking uh, and commenting and reflecting on the Israel being re regathered and reformed as a nation. And he said he didn't expect to, that they would be there the very next year. Well, they, they, put, they scheduled him as the first chapel speaker that next year. <laughs> um, Dallas is a very great seminary, by the way. Don't get me wrong, but this guy was wrong about that. Uh, Hal Lindsey, in 1970, wrote The Late Great Planet Earth and, and in it kind of hinting that Christ would return by 1988, which was a 40-year generation after the rebirth of Israel in 1948. And he wrote a book in 1980 called The 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon, and he speculated that the rapture and the start of the tribulation would occur in the 1980s. Um, then we had this man named Edgar Weisenant. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but he wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Uh, that didn't happen. And then he rewrote a book called 89 Reasons Why the Lord Will Return in 1989. <laughs> uh, that didn't sell as well as the first one. Then we had Harold Camping with uh, Family Radio, and he wrote a book called 1994, predicting the Lord's return on September 7th, 1994, based on sort of a numerology and the founding of modern Israel and other signs of the times, and, and he said he was more than 99% certain his prediction was accurate. And then he did a repeat just a few years back in May 21st, 2011, and uh, he would boldly assert on his radio program that uh, the Bible guarantees it. I remember tuning in and hearing him say those words. Here's that verse about the scoffers and uh, pictures of those books I mentioned. Harold Camping, it was kind of a big deal, you know, it got a lot of press and it was in the media, and sorry for the dim picture, but, you know, there was billboards everywhere saying Judgment Day, May 21st, the Bible guarantees it. I remember working downtown that year, and my friend Ben Boskeljohn, some of you know the Boskeljohns, he was working downtown at the same time, and we, we went out to the St. Patrick's Day Parade, and Ben uh, approached a guy who was wearing a t-shirt that said, the end is coming, May 21st, you know, and, and he said, no one can know the day or the hour. He was trying to give him a Bible verse, and, and he just looked at Ben and said, you've been warned. <laughs> and uh, boy, I mean, but what the sad thing is about all of that is that you know, not only giving Christians a bad name, but just think of the disillusionment it causes for those Christians who are blindly led by that. At that time, people sold all their possessions and they, you know, gave it away and then because they weren't going to need it. 
And they went to and drove to cross country to choice locations to be ready for the rapture. And just think how they've had to live in the aftermath of that now, the past four years. It's just really a kind of a sad thing, really. Um, Harold Camping passed away at age 92 on December 15th, 2013. But before he passed away, he, he did go on to say that he now believed that, uh, well, first he said he was very surprised it didn't happen. And he finally admitted that he no longer believed that anyone could know when the time of the rapture would be or the end of the world. And so then he retired, and, and he went on again on the radio that following March, and, and he said it was even sinful for him uh, to, to predict the end of the world. And he acknowledged his critics who told him, reminded, kept trying to tell him this Bible verse in Matthew twenty four thirty six, which says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Um, and Family Radio has now suffered a significant loss of assets, staff, and revenue. Um, but, you know, for these reasons and others, people avoid Bible prophecy, unfortunately. Their attitude is, when Jesus comes, um, the end times come, they will come. But in the meantime, I have my life to live. And unfortunately, that's a bad attitude because Bible prophecy can have such a positive effect on our lives. There, there's just something that's so uplifting about Bible prophecy to think about the end times. Uh, here's a, a post billboard. Can, yeah, I don't know if you can see it too well, but it just says, is, this was after the May 21st, 2011 prediction, and, and it says, that was awkward. Uh, no one knows the day or the hour. Matthew 24, 36. Um, we have a man named John Hagee, and uh, he's out, uh, he's written a book about the blood moons, and I don't know how much you've read about that, but just Google it. Blood moons, Hagee, H-A-G-E-E. There's some, he's saying that basically every time there's these alignment, a tetrarch of blood moons uh, that line up with the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles on back-to-back years, that there's a significant turn of events in the history of Israel. And supposedly this happened at the time that Israel was founded in 1948, and it's happening. The first two were last year, and the next two were this year. So maybe sometime this year there will be a significant turn of events for Israel. Who knows? So, where does eschatology fit in with other important doctrines? Um, the Dark Ages ended about 1500, and people started, they were printing Bibles with the printing press, and doctrines were being explored, and, and the, there was just a real revival in the church through that time. And one of the last doctrines to get closely looked at was this area of the end times, eschatology. And, and we have kind of an interesting connection to that um, in Ireland and England with uh, John Nelson Darby, one of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren Movement, which our roots are in that. And uh, he really popularized and, and uh, fleshed out this uh, belief system that we have about the end times. And he spread it throughout Ireland and England. He was a prolific writer and literature distributor. And then he came over in the 1870s to the U.S. and uh, popularized the end times theology throughout the U.S. And so, so we have some roots of that. It's kind of an interesting connection. Um, but where does it fit in? Have you ever heard the saying, major on the majors and minor on the minors? You know, there's some doctrines that we must be in agreement on uh, to be together in fellowship in the church. That would be what? Like... The Bible is the word of God, inerrant. Jesus is the son of God. Uh, the virgin birth. What? The, the Trinity. Um, so those are, those are doctrines we must be in agreement on. I would say that there's some doctrines, even within eschatology, that we 
should be agree on. Um, but then within eschatology, it's, it's okay to disagree, agreeably disagree on a lot of the finer points, but some things we should be in agreement on. Uh, so what's major and what's minor in eschatology? Where should we agree and where is it okay to disagree? Um, well, I would say that in eschatology, the study of the end times, we, we must agree that Jesus Christ is coming again. That would be one. Uh, another one would be that he's, uh, there's going to be a day of judgment for unbelievers. Another would be a day of reward for believers. That uh, Christ will triumph over all his enemies. And, yeah, I've got some of these up here on the slide, if you can read it. Um, and that believers will live with Christ in a new heavens and new earth. Those are things that are pretty clear from the end of the book of Revelation. Those aren't, you know, there's, there's obviously skeptics and liberals out there who would deny all of that. But within, the, within Christian orthodoxy, those are things that we should agree on. But there's other doctrines about the end times that are, that are very important and we should discuss and, and even debate on, but they're, they're not essential. If we have differing views in these areas, it's okay. We don't have to break fellowship over them. Uh, that would be like the timing of the rapture. So, you know, if there's you know, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, we'll talk a little about, about that more later. Um, the timing and fulfillment of the Great Tribulation, you know, some say those were fulfilled in the first century. Um, timing and nature of the millennium. There's a thousand-year period described in Revelation chapter 20, and there's, there's some different views about that, too, that we'll, we'll take a look at in a little while. Um, and I just want to stress that Bible prophecy matters. And it matters, first of all, because it makes up such a large portion of our Bibles. I don't know if you realize this, but 20% of our Bibles are prophecy. That's, that's a big chunk of our Bible. If we never studied prophecy, we would be missing out a lot on the, on, in our Bibles. Okay, get this. Of the 333 prophecies of Christ's coming, only 109 of them were fulfilled at his first coming. So do some quick math. How many are unfulfilled awaiting to be fulfilled? 333 minus 109 is 224. 224 prophecies are yet to be fulfilled about the coming of Christ. Um, in the New Testament, 330 verses refer directly to the second coming of Christ. 330 verses. And the Lord Jesus himself said, spoke of his return 21 times. The Apostle Paul spoke of it 50 times. So you get the idea here that this is an important subject in the Bible. And uh, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, when he was talking about the rapture and the day of the Lord, he said, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. You know, we don't want to be ignorant over such a large part of the Bible. And we won't have a complete view of the scriptures and the knowledge of God without understanding prophecy. And even when we study prophecy, we're not going to have a complete knowledge of it. But the Bible has revealed a lot of things to us, and so it's good and helpful to look at it. Um, so I want to go over some of the reasons we study this. And, this, and just talking about these itself is, is good and important and valuable to us. First of all, it gives us proof of the reliability of Scripture. When you have prophecy in the Bible... Uh, given hundreds of years even before they're fulfilled, and then you have the fulfillment of those prophecies, that's a powerful uh, proof of the, of the Bible and its accuracy and trustworthiness. 
And that's one of the main purposes God gave us prophecy. It's to reveal uh, to us what's going to happen before it actually happens. And there's a number of them that haven't come to pass. And uh, just as the prophecies about his first coming came to pass literally and precisely, we can expect that the rest of those prophecies that haven't been fulfilled will be fulfilled one day, literally and precisely. Uh, Secondly, it reminds us that God is sovereign. I'm going to use the clicker. Uh, it reminds us that God is sovereign. And you know what? When you look out in the world today and you see how chaotic things are at times, how much evil there is, the wars, um, the spread of disease and disasters, and, and you see groups like ISIS over in Iraq uh, beheading Christians, and, you th- and you just, it just makes you long for the return of the Lord. Uh, you know, it just, Bible prophecy reminds us that he's sovereign, that ultimately he is in control, and one day he's going to bring evil to an end. Uh, Satan's referred to as the God of this world in Scripture, but, but even he, as we'll see later, is still under the authority of the Lord. And one day, Revelation 20 tells us that he's going to be bound up and cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years and, and, then, and released for a short while, but then sent to the lake of fire. So Bible prophecy gives us the truth about the end of history, and it reminds us of God's purposes and his plans for us in this world. In Romans 8.22 tells us that the whole creation groans in pain. It's kind of interesting to think about. This whole world, you know, we heard about this morning in the beginning of Genesis, right? Everything was created and it was good. It was perfect as God intended it to be. But then sin came into the world. And it not only affected our lives, but it affected our our planet and our universe. And Romans 8 says the whole creation groans in pain. One day that's going to be changed. One day Christ is coming back and he's going to change all that. And all the issues we have today in our world of sin and uh, the social issues in our cultures, you know, abortion and LGBT acceptance, the murders, the wars, all of that is going to be brought to an end in the kingdom. And no one can stop the plans of God Almighty. That's what these scriptures and these prophecies remind us of. That as out of control as things seem to be today, one day we'll be brought under the control of God. Um, Prophecy reminds us that God is good. God is good. You know, we, most people endure personal pain, uh, even for young people, you know? I mean, you go through experiences in life, uh, whether it's with your children or, or other life circumstances, your marriage. Um, most people experience some kind of pain and suffering. And some of those issues of pain go on for the rest of our lives. And God gives us strength and peace and a measure of healing through those circumstances. But beyond that, ultimately, if there were no prophecies that guaranteed us a better future in the afterlife, life would be pretty depressing, you know? I mean, the great thing, though, is that God is taking us home to his house where we will experience close fellowship with him and we will be free forever from all the pain and suffering we've ever been through. Revelation 21 says that he will wipe away every tear from our eye. Won't that be wonderful? Bible prophecy reminds us that God is good and it, because it gives us the facts about life after death. A few verses just to encourage you with here. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians four seventeen says, For our light affliction which is but for a moment, 
is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. When we're absent from this body, we'll be present with the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. And we celebrate that at the funerals of Christians. 1 Thessalonians 4 was written about believers in the city of Thessalonica. They were very concerned about their loved ones who had died because Christ had taught them about his kingdom and, and his return. And they were concerned that those who had died and, and the Lord hadn't come back yet, what about them? The Lord hadn't returned and, and Paul prophesied about the resurrection of the dead in Christ. But, and then so he goes on to comfort them with the reality that there would be a rapture of the church. And the dead in Christ would rise first and we will be caught up together with them and forever be with the Lord. And so they're words of comfort. Revelation 21.4, one last one, and, and I quoted this one a bit. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Isn't that great? That causes us to look forward to the return of Christ. Uh, Bible prophecy motivates us to holy living, holy living. If we look in Titus, Titus uh, chapter 2, and verses 11 to 13, it reads, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. You know, having a perspective of the future return of the Lord affects the way we live our lives now. If we, if we expect that the Lord could return at any moment, and he could, that might change the way we view sin in our lives. Um, that might cause us to have a desire to live righteously in our lives, knowing that he could come back. First uh, John 2 is a great verse in First John 2, 28 through chapter 3 in the first few verses. And I want to share a few of those with you. In 1 John 2, 28, John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Why would we be ashamed before him at his coming? If, maybe if we had sin in our lives. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So if we have that hope that he could return, and we have that hope and expectation that when he appears, we shall be like him, that, that might change the way we live our lives. I think so. Uh, Bible prophecy helps us establish heavenly priorities. Heavenly priorities. You know, we have a lot of priorities in life, and you, you can tell what your priorities are by the way, way you spend your time, right? Um, usually your top few priorities in life will happen. And what is really important to us? Uh, what is really important to you right now? What's on your minds as far as the next big project you're working on or, or hope to do or take a vacation or some kind of endeavor in life? 
Or what else are we looking forward to? A wedding, maybe, of a child or grandchild or a friend. Uh, you know, we look forward to, some of us anyways, doing our, a, a job, a job well done in our career. Uh, watching our kids and grandkids grow up. Um, what a, Scientists uh, make plans, you know, 10-year projects. Uh, you know, our son Benjamin has cystic fibrosis. And, and it's just so exciting what they're doing today on these these plans and projects and the drug pipeline and the, and the future of treatments for the disease. It's just really amazing. And these are big, year-long, multi-year-long projects that they do. Uh, should a scientist who is a Christian eagerly long uh, for Christ's return, and, and if he does long for Christ's return, should he start that 10-year research project? Uh, should you plan that retirement plan? Uh, you know, think about that. What are those things? Those aren't bad things. I'm not saying that at all. Um, but if we only, if our priorities are only around our earthly lives and those things, um, we, we could be missing out on what the Lord wants for us. Um, let me ask this question. Would we be okay if we got to do, if Christ returned today and we didn't get to finish any of those things and none of those things actually came to pass? You know, what if you were working on that college degree and uh, the day before you were supposed to graduate and you had worked hard for all those years, Christ returned. Would that be okay? Yeah, I was thinking back to when Jess and I were married almost 15 years ago, and I, I thought about the Lord's return a lot, and I just, I just remember thinking, you know, I, I really look forward to the rapture, and I, I love the idea of the rapture, and I was thinking that would be a good thing, but you know, it could wait a couple of days until after the wedding. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean. I, I wanted to marry Jesslyn, so... But you know, I don't think the Lord uh, thought bad of me for that. I don't know. God delights in weddings. He delights in our activities and plans, too. If we faithfully obey him in the present, if we're actively, actively engaged in whatever work he's given to us, to his glory, you know what? Do that with your whole heart as unto the Lord and not unto men. That's what the scripture tells us. And, and that's honoring to the Lord. You know, we don't just need to compartmentalize and isolate our school life and our work life from the the Christian life, everything we do and make plans about and, and our priorities, you know what, if our heart's in, right in it and if we're seeking to please the Lord and honor him in everything we do, that pleases the Lord and we should make those plans. But at the same time, we should watch for and expect and hope for that the Lord Jesus would return at any time in the rapture. All right. So next, it motivates us to serve God. Second coming motivates us to serve God. And that's part of Bible uh, heavenly priorities. Um, when we study the prophecies of our Lord Jesus Christ, for me at least, it, it moves me and my heart to action. I want to serve the Lord. You know, it should produce a dynamic spirit in your heart and life when you, when you think about it and have that expectation. You know what? Maybe, maybe you came here tonight and you, this is kind of new to you. Or maybe you came here and you, you've been around it for a long time. But you know what? This... Uh, will hopefully be refreshing to everyone and stir our hearts to want to serve the Lord, to use the spiritual gifts he's given us and to be busy about his work. Um, not a busy body, though. Uh, there was a warning in Scripture from the Apostle Paul. In 2 Thessalonians 3, he said, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. He went on in verses 10 and 12 saying, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. 
For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now you know what a busybody is, right? I mean, they're always busy, um, bustling about, occupied, but as a busybody. You know, they're, they're everywhere doing everything, but accomplishing nothing. That's what, that's what a busybody is. But that's not what prophecy is supposed to produce in us. And when we study Bible prophecy and the return of the Lord, it causes us to be busy in the body of Christ, building it up, not burdening it down, serving others, not just coming to be served. And the future of our final salvation at the return of Jesus Christ should motivate us to a life of productivity. There's no room for laziness and apathy in the Christian life. When we take what the Bible says seriously about the return of the Lord, it should stir in us a desire to faithfully serve the Lord all our lives and finish strong, even at the end of our lives. And the Lord, uh, in Matthew 25, he, he was able to tell a servant this. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. For I, I will, you are faithful in a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Wouldn't you love to have that said of you? Uh, when you face the Lord someday. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things, and now I'll make you faithful over many things. That's a great thing to be said of us. Hopefully it will be. Um, And lastly, it causes us to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. This is great. One of the greatest profits and benefits from our study of Bible prophecy is that it focuses us, and it focuses our lives on the Savior, um, the Son of God, and we get all into all the plans and schemes and charts of eschatology in just a little bit here. But, uh, but the most importantly is that all of this should drive us to worship the Lord in our lives. Revelation 19.10 says, And I fell, this is the Apostle John in his vision of heaven in the Revelation, and I fell at his feet, that's the angel. He fell at the feet of an angel to worship him, but the angel said to him, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Uh, The former president of Dallas Seminary, John Wolverd, said, and he's an outstanding writer on Revelation, this means that prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and loveliness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Christ is not only the major theme of the scriptures, but also the central theme of prophecy. You know, I'm not, I'm not just looking forward to the rapture and, and the second coming and earthly millennial kingdom, new heavens and new earth, apart from Christ. Christ is the meaning behind all of it. He is the central figure of it at all. And Bible prophecy should really cause us uh, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and live our lives in a way that would please him. So uh, I, hope you're, I hope that stirs your heart a little bit here this night this evening. Uh, any other, I'll just kind of open it up. Does anybody have any thoughts or comments on that? Um, how, you know, about Bible prophecy affecting your life? The, uh, I don't know if, I don't really have permission to share this out loud, but I, th- I, think, I think it's okay. Uh, you know, Tom and Connie uh, in the uh, church, uh, Keller, sorry, I'm just drawing the blank. Yeah, Tom Keller, I was just asking him about the rapture and his view on it, and, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah. and, and then uh, he, I was mentioning Thief in the Night, uh, seeing that as a kid, and he said, you know what, the Lord used that movie to, 
you know, draw me to himself. The Lord used that as a part of his bringing him to the Lord uh, for salvation. So just, it's kind of neat, you know, Bible prophecy. Has anybody else had a similar experience like that, Bible prophecy drawing you to the Lord? Same movie? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's kind of neat. I, we probably all have some kind of story about the Bible or other experiences like that, but prophecy in particular can do that. That's neat. Well, I want to encourage you that Jesus is going to return. Without a doubt, the Bible is very clear that Jesus must return. And here's top ten reasons why. Uh, first of all, the promises of God demand it. And uh, promises of God demand it. That's, it's, prophecies have been fulfilled of his first coming. Prophecies are, will be fulfilled about his second coming. Just think about some of the ones for a moment with me that occurred at his first coming. You know, there, there was prophecies in Isaiah 7, 14. Uh, what, anybody know that offhand, Isaiah seven fourteen, Or close to it? Prophecy of Christ. Well, it said he'll, he shall be born of a virgin, right? And in Matthew 1, uh, here we have the angel of the Lord speaking um, to Mary and Joseph and, and is fulfilled literally, precisely, the virgin birth. About Micah 5.2. Anybody know the Micah 5.2 prophecy offhand? Born in Bethlehem, exactly. And in Matthew 2, we have the fulfillment of that. Born in Bethlehem. Very literally, very precisely. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, kind of in general. Um, and, also, and then they're fulfilled in all the last chapters of the four Gospels. Are you familiar with those Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 prophecies? Yeah, about the suffering of the Messiah, suffering, rejection and suffering of the Messiah. How about Isaiah 53.9 in particular? You, you might not have heard this one. I, I came across this in my study for this class for the first time. But there's prophecy in Isaiah 53.9 that he would die with the wicked and be buried by the rich. And in fact, he was crucified with the wicked, to a sinner on each hand, and buried by the rich man. Um, that's, that's kind of neat. That prophecy was there. Psalm 16, 8 to 10. Anybody familiar with that one? Fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, or at least spoken of that prophecy in Acts chapter 2. Uh, we have a prophecy about the resurrection there. Yep, the resurrection's in there too. And his body wouldn't be able to, won't be allowed to see decay. And uh, here in Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost quotes that scripture. And applies it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How about Psalm 68? We're going in order in the life of Jesus here. So after the resurrection, there's the ascension. Ascension. He goes back to heaven. And that's in Psalm 68, 18. And Ephesians 4, 8 references that. So that's kind of neat. All these prophecies. And, and it just reminds us of that, that time when Jesus was walking with the disciples down the road in Luke 24. And he told them, verses 25 to 27... O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know what? uh, Would he say to us about the prophecies of his second coming, O foolish and slow of heart to believe in all that I've written for you about the second coming? Hopefully not. Um, so prophecies awaiting a second coming. We have in Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2 is just a great chapter to read. It's one of the, I'd say one of the central 
passages on end times. Because he talks in verse 6, he says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And uh, he goes on in verses 8 to 9 to say, I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So that's saying the Messiah is going to be king over the nations and rule them with power, very clearly. Did he do that at his first coming? No, he didn't do that. So that's going to be at his second coming. Uh, Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. It says, For unto us a child is born. Now this is a neat passage because you got prophecy of both his first and second coming back to back, even though they're separated by millennia. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given at his first coming, right? Now listen to this next part. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, the government wasn't on his shoulder at his first coming, was it? And it goes on to say, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So that's kind of neat. In the same passage, back-to-back prophecies of, you know, in the Old Testament prophecies, the prophets uh, didn't always, they couldn't distinguish it. You know, the expectation of Israel at at the coming of Christ was that there would be a literal, earthly, political ruler of a Messiah on their, on their, uh, in the nation of Israel and deliver them from Roman oppression. And, you know, when he was captured by the Romans, uh, that left a lot of people disillusioned on that final week of his life. And they, and they end up saying, crucify him. You know, what kind of Messiah is this, basically? Uh, we don't want this kind of Messiah. We want a glorious king and a ruler that will deliver us from Rome, not a, not a suffering man like this. Uh, but he is coming back again, and that's going to be a great time. Um, period of great peace and righteousness on the earth. And that's in the next slide here. So in Isaiah 11, verses 4 to 9, it says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Did that happen at his first coming? No. They rejected him. It's a period of great peace and righteousness on the earth to come yet. And I think of Isaiah, and I'm thinking, you know, have you ever been mountain climbing, right? And or just climbing somewhat moderately high mountains, you know, not Pikes Peak or Mount Everest. But if you, I, I remember when I was 16, we were out in Colorado, and my older cousin and I went, so let's go climb that mountain over there. It's just we were right by it, and that'd be fun. Well, we worked hard. We got to the top of it, and we're like, oh, there was a valley, and you couldn't see past that, and there was another higher mountain just beyond it. You weren't at the top yet. And then so you go down and work your up to the next one. Again, there was another gap, a valley, and then up to the next peak. And then we were finally at the top. Three hours up, half hour down. That was a couple teenage boys having fun on the way down. <laughs> um, but, you know, the prophets were a lot like that. Um, they couldn't always see the differences in the comings of Christ, and they couldn't see the valleys and gaps in between. Uh, in theology, we call that mountain peaks of prophecy. You know, the prophets could sometimes maybe see the first thing or the second one, or they couldn't make sense... These two things don't exactly align, but that's the prophecy of the Lord, and they proclaimed it. Um, so the first and second coming and with a gap in between. So Isaiah probably understands it better now in heaven. Uh, Micah 4, and I'll speed along through these here, describes a time of peace and righteousness when people will come to Jerusalem to be taught by the Lord. Uh, Zechariah and Zechariah 14, that's another central uh, chapter to read if you get a chance to... Uh, 
describing the Lord fighting against the enemies of Jerusalem and, and coming down and splitting the Mount of Olives and the earth will be renewed and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Obviously not a prophecy about his first coming. Uh, we look forward to that one being fulfilled yet. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, verses 12 to 14, and I don't know that I put that, yes, I did put it on there, but you probably can't read it. It's kind of dark, but um, let me read it to you. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, this is a prophecy to David, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Now, in one sense, it's talking about David and his son Solomon. But in another sense, Solomon didn't possess the throne of his kingdom forever. That's, that part of the prophecy, the, the throne of David and the kingdom of David forever, has yet to be fulfilled. And that's coming in the second coming. So I go through these in just a little bit of detail like this because it's important. It's important because as literally and precisely as the prophecies of his first coming were fulfilled, we can confidently expect that all the prophecies about waiting to be fulfilled about a second coming will happen literally and precisely just as those first coming prophecies were. Well, now I have a little activity for you, so this will break up the monologue here a little bit. Um, if you look in your sheets here, there's a little activity for you to do, and then we'll take a little break. Um, there's a list of 10 verses, and this shouldn't take you too long, really. They're, they're sort of obvious. Look at the following Old Testament verses which describe the coming Messiah. In front of each description... Put either the letters SM for the suffering Messiah or the letters GK for glorious king. So suffering Messiah would be his first coming, glorious king for his second coming. So like, for example, the first one, Daniel 7.14 says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So that, would that be suffering servant or glorious king? Glorious King. So put GK there. All right. I'll give you a few minutes to do that, and then uh, we regroup in a few minutes here, and then we'll take a break. Okay. Anybody need another minute, or are we good? All right. Let's go through these. Um, So on number two, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, Isaiah 9-7. Suffering servant or glorious king? Glorious King, yep. They pierced my hands and my feet, Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. Suffering servant, yep. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty, the Lord is our king, Isaiah 33. Yeah, I'd say glorious king. There's certainly a beauty in the death and on the cross, but this is, you know, about his glory. His visage face was so marred more than any man, Isaiah 52. Be obviously suffering servant. Uh, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah fifty three three. Suffering Messiah. Yep, suffering Messiah. A king shall reign and prosper. Jeremiah twenty three five. Glorious king. Yeah, these are kind of obvious. But uh, in three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. Daniel nine twenty six. It would be suffering Messiah, although you go in that same passage, there's prophecies about the glorious king too. Um, okay, Isaiah fifty three twelve says, Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, 
and he was numbered with the transgressors, he, and he bears the sin of many. Suffering Messiah. Yep. Okay, good. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm, I'm standing up here, but you guys are my peers. I mean, if you are older than me and have studied the Bible much longer than me, so I'm a humble servant up front. I have a responsibility to do here, but you know what? I appreciate the wisdom of my older brothers. And even if you're younger than me and you have something like that to say, speak up. <laughs> All right, good, good. Well, that's good. Um, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Isaiah 40, that's obviously glorious king. All right. Well, let's take a 10-minute break here. Use the bathroom, get drinks and cookies, and then uh, let's say at uh, 8.05. Is it? No, 7.05. We'll start right back up.